different uh, translations of the Bible are going to say typically slightly different things that mean the same. You might have something like everything necessary or everything pertaining to life and godliness in verse 3 of this text. But I want to read just a couple verses again. And keep in mind that is the, the idea or the verse that we're going to zero in on. But I do kind of want to read a few verses around the context again for emphasis and also to uh, highlight what we're going to be spending our time talking about within this this greater text. I asked David to read the whole thing because we are considering the whole of the text. We are considering how to become partakers of the divine nature and everything that's revealed to us in those 11 or 12 verses. But this morning I want to focus in on the first few. Beginning of verse 1, Simon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith equal uh, of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power, God's, right? His divine power has granted to us, us being those who are of equal faith in Christ Jesus, right? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Um, that's the phrase, which is more than just uh, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Really, most of verse 3 is what I'm going to look at today. What I want us to notice is kind of bit by bit of this phrase. We're just going to kind of work through different parts of this. And I don't know if anything that I'm going to say, and this is pretty typical, is new or different. Though that's not the aim of preaching ever, is to be new or different. It's to be true and helpful. But I don't know if I'm going to have any particular insight that's new to you or exciting to you. But I hope that this lesson finds it uh, in your heart as true and useful to you in your walk with the Lord. The first thing that I want us to see in this text is this idea that God's divine powers involved. If I want to be a partaker of the divine nature, well, then I automatically know by that statement that it's not something that I probably can supply for myself. It's defined as being divine. If I have a, a proper understanding of who I am biblically, before God, then I know that while I am of God, I'm certainly not God. I'm not divine in the sense that he is. And so to become a partaker of something that is divine means that something divine is going to have to help me get there. Right? And that's really what, in verse 3, his divine power creates the possibility of. That's why God has to do it. His divine power is the thing that grants to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. When you think about divine power, certainly you need to think about God, divine, right? But think about all the instances through the Bible where divine powers on display. Innumerable opportunities to consider, even just from the Bible text. Not to mention, as the gospel writers say, so many more things that they couldn't even write or contain in the books, right? And I only imagine that's possibly true throughout history, as God has done things, but at least minimally in Jesus's life, there was so much more that they didn't even record. I mean, think about the things that have happened. I mean, in Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth and essentially everything that exists within them and around them over the course of 
a six-day period. On the seventh day, he rests, and he does it all just by speaking, by wanting it to happen. There's a lot of stuff in my life I've wanted to happen, and it has not done that, like getting uh, traveling to California and staying healthy. I couldn't even pull that off. I got sick. And I remember, and we joked about this on the trip, I remember Sunday night, the first night that I had a fever and was feeling bad, I remember as I was drifting off to sleep and had taken NyQuil and had like a wet rag on my head on an air mattress, I was just laying there going, I was praying and I said, God, I don't have any altruistic motives for this. I just want to feel better tomorrow so I can go to San Francisco. Right? Selfish prayer in some ways, an honest prayer. Next day I felt fine, went to San Francisco. We joked about how selfish prayers work, which is not what you should learn from this lesson. But I couldn't even stay healthy. What did I have to appeal to at the end of the day to have any hope of feeling better the next day? Not myself, divine power. I'd ask God, help me through this. God has created Everything just because he wanted to, exactly as he wanted it. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then when he gets to people like you and me, he says they're very good. You know, in Genesis chapter 19, there's this story about this city that's really wicked. Actually, there's two of them. They're named Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's involvement with them is certainly divine and powerful, but it's scary. Because what we remember from that story is... Fire and brimstone rain down from heaven on these two cities that God plucks his people out of just in time so that they're not destroyed in that judgment. Divine power. Not just the fire and brimstone, though certainly that's a great demonstration of divine power, but that God knew exactly how many people he had in that city, that he had to get out. Divine power. That he was able to get them out. Divine power. Dividing the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14 is a big moment of God's power. And not to overlook another one is that brings us to that moment are the ten plagues, right? Every plague is a, is a great and awesome demonstration or example of divine power. Magicians try to duplicate it, but it's divine power. It's not uh, profane or common power. They can't. When Moses approaches the Red Sea, <coughs> God divides that for him as he has God's mouthpiece or God's uh, hand among the people. And it parts in a really amazing scene. I remember as a kid watching The Prince of Egypt, which is a great movie as a kid to help illustrate some of these things, but also has some stuff in it that I still think is true to this day because I watched it when I was young. And one of the scenes is, when they're walking on the Red Sea that has been parted, the ground is dry for them, which is accurate. And I remember the like lightning flashes. And when the lightning flashes, you see like a whale, an outline of a whale in the water. I have no idea if that actually happened, but that's a good illustration of a real moment of divine power. Like water should not have parted like that, right? In fact, it doesn't stay parted. God's power controls it to such that when the Israel, I mean the Egyptians try to go through, God says, okay, this is done. And he floods them all out, right? Divine power. It's not just moments of <coughs> raw energy. It's under control, right? 
providing manna from heaven just a couple chapters later in Exodus 16 as the Israelites get on the other side of that sea God's provided for them we've talked about divine power being fire and brimstone and creation and the plagues and the Red Sea being divided but it's also this weird flaky bread stuff that comes out of heaven that I don't really totally understand the description of because in and of itself it's sort of divine and you see that sustaining the people all through uh, the Israelite wandering and all through their waiting to come into the land that's power from God it doesn't look like fire and brimstone but who else can create something that just falls on a whim and a wish from heaven for his people in just the right amount and have it spoil exactly when he wants it to because he doesn't want them to keep it for longer than they're supposed to right that's divine power in isaiah chapter 9 if you want to turn there you can i'm just going to have a very short reading from this it says this Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to begin in verse 1, but the point is really verse 6. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, when in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, without talking a ton about the book of Isaiah, you can see the beginning of this reading is kind of an odd one to just kind of jump into because it's talking about how the land is in anguish, there's gloom. The scene is such that people are walking in darkness, but immediately you see divine power. There's great light, and there's a light shining, and the nations multiplied, and even though there's a deep darkness... There's joy increasing. And it gets even weirder because what Isaiah is painting a picture of for us, it's a prophetic one, is of divine power, but not in a way that you'd necessarily expect it. Because he's describing like battle scenes, like robes dipped in blood and the boots of warriors and all this stuff in verse 5. But the answer to all of it, like, is that a child's going to be born? doesn't really make sense and of course as christians or as believers you may start already turning your mind to a child that you know 
that was born that's of divine power. That's Jesus, right? I've never really paid much attention to the phrase in verse 6, mighty God, because I usually am looking at wonderful counselor or prince of peace. But the child that is born, the son that is given, is mighty. <clears throat> He's divine power displayed in a, in a body. Jesus' divine power. You know, I just gave you a few examples from what we call the Old Testament, some of the older stories of God's people and God working his power in their lives. But Jesus did the same thing. <clears throat> Jesus comes through divine power. No man had given Mary an opportunity to bear a child. She was a virgin. And yet, in Luke 1, we see Jesus born divine power. Jesus in Luke chapter 5, and I just picked out a few instances. We could go through the Gospels and pick out a bunch more than this. He heals a paralyzed man who's lowered down through the roof because his friends brought him. And in that exchange, he says, So that you'll know I have the power to forgive you of your sins. Arise, take up your bed, and walk. That's divine power. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals the eyes of a blind man. Weird story with like mud in his eyes and all this stuff. Divine power. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus speaks about some events that are still perplexing to me even to this day. He's either talking about maybe the judgment day or Jerusalem or something, but he's telling us about a future day. And there's going to be nations fighting and there's this like turmoil and there's this turnover. Divine power to know the future. To have it so sure and clear in one's mind. And ultimately, maybe the, the largest manifestation, the most obvious sign of Jesus' being divine power is in Luke 24, when people kill him and he refuses to stay dead. He just gets up a couple days later. Like he said he would, he waited a very controlled amount of time. It wasn't that he was like cutting through his ropes for three days because he couldn't get loose. He said... I'm going to stay there for three days, and then I'll get up. Just like Jonah. That's divine power. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, when he says, His divine power is the thing that grants to us everything necessary for life and godliness. It's the same divine power involved in all of these events that I've mentioned. It's the same divine power that spoke everything into existence because it wanted it to exist. It's the same divine power that rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same divine power that divided the Red Sea or brought manna from heaven. It's the same divine power that produced a son who is mighty God, who was born of a virgin, who healed paralyzed people and blind men and prophesied of future events and refused to stay dead. It's that divine power that Peter's talking about in Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power. These are the types of things that we need to see and be able to consider and to know about so that when, we want to, when we're considering becoming partakers of the, what's divine, of the nature that is God's, we can understand that the power that he has to make that happen. It's such an impossible thing if we don't really get the divine power behind it. But the next thing I want us to look at is this idea that 
God granted to us. <coughs> Excuse me. He didn't have to do that, you know. That to me is probably the most overlooked aspect of verse 3. I was sitting here. I don't know if I'd ever considered verse 3 for a long time just by itself in this text until I was preparing for this. Because that's the, that's the request is to do verse 3. But being granted to us is the part that I was most eager or not eager, but easily overlooked, granted to us. God's divine power did not have to be granted to us. He never had to speak us into existence. We didn't have to necessarily be in his image. He didn't have to, as the New Testament teaches us, have a plan before the foundations of the earth to redeem us and to predestine us to be his own and to call us into his glory. I appreciate that he did. But certainly I'll never presume God had to do that. God granted to us his divine power that made all things necessary for life and godliness. John in John 1 <coughs> says this. John chapter 1 <coughs> verse 16. And from his being Jesus, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now that's certainly not a statement made in 2 Peter chapter 1 particularly verse 3. But when I read that he granted to us, I just hear another grace. That's one of the many graces that Jesus has made available to us that his divine power has granted. Well, it's a grace upon a grace. He was a son that was beheld. He was a child born to us as mighty God, as a wonderful counselor. And he's been granted what a grace. In John chapter 14, if you guys want to turn there, I'll actually read several verses from here. <coughs> it contains a lot of verses that a lot of us know, even probably by heart. Uh, but I want to read seven verses in this text. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The word grant or granting or granted never actually appears in this text. But I thought of this text because this sounds like Jesus allowing something. Which is really the idea of the word granted, right? In 2 Peter chapter 1... His divine power granted to us, made possible, is the idea, right? Allowed would be another way to say that. In this text, Jesus is inviting people to believe and inviting them 
to come into a room that he's preparing. Right? And he says, like, I wouldn't have told you about it, and we might insert, if I had not allowed you to come or granted it to you. Right? That's kind of the implication of the statement. I will come again and I will take you to myself. Right? God has always, thankfully, been willing to grant to us things. Right? He allowed Adam and Eve to be in the garden and he walked among them. And yet when they sinned, he granted them a continuation. He didn't like smite it all and just stop it there. They continued. And he granted to them angels to guard the garden so that they could not get back to the tree of life. Right? I see that as a grace upon grace in some weird ways, even though I don't understand all the implications of that. God is always offering grace upon grace in our favor. He's granting us things all the time. And Jesus, in this one text, there's a bunch that you can see Jesus granting things. He's, he's allowing things. He's allowing people to follow and to, to know and to believe. But in this text... Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm granting you to follow me. In fact, I'm going to come get you to be there with me. If it were not so, I would have told you about it. Right? <clears throat> Where we're going to spend the next little bit of our time in this idea uh, is moving from being granted. Because I hope that we see that being granted is certainly a grace. And it's something that something about God always wants to grant us things because he's good. Right? His divine power, that thing that we've known about for so many stories, grants to us, right? How often do we think about his divine power being a grace? But it grants to us what I want to talk about next, which is everything necessary or pertaining to life and godliness. Ephesians chapter 1, turn there. You're probably familiar with Ephesians 1. I feel like I turn there a lot. I feel like in our Bible studies we talk about it a lot. And even if you're not here for those, it's a good place to know because all the spiritual blessings are listed out. And that's what we're going to talk about. But in verse 3 it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one of them. He has blessed to us. Might be another way to say he has granted to us. Right? His divine power has granted us. Ephesians 1.3, he has blessed us with. Right? Ephesians chapter 1 ends up being this uh, description of what that is. Because he makes the statement in verse 3, every spiritual blessing has been blessed to us in Christ Jesus. And that's a specific statement, right? His divine power in Christ Jesus but beginning in verse 4, we start seeing what those are. Let's read this. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, one, we see we have been, we've had preference granted to us in verse 4. He chose us, right? You might say he preferred us or he wanted us. We also see in verse 4 that holiness has been granted to us. We also see that blamelessness, right? 
has been granted to us. It's, all these things are parts of what is necessary for life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us these things. In verse 5, <coughs> In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And stop there for a moment. Adoption and sonship are things pertaining to life and godliness that he has granted to us. Verse 6, To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Another thing that's necessary or pertaining to life and godliness is God's glorious grace. I hope we understand that's necessary and that's been granted to us. Verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, you see in verse 7. You also see forgiveness. Both of those things are certainly necessary to life and godliness. And they've been granted to you. Or to us in Christ Jesus. This is a small taste of what it is to examine everything necessary for life and godliness. The things that I mentioned were he's chosen us, he's given us preference, right? There's holiness, there's blamelessness, there's adoption, there's sonship, there's glorious grace, there's redemption and forgiveness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is one of those statements that I don't know if I could exhaust it. You know, there's always like nuance and layers. Just like John said, there's grace upon grace. Like you can just kind of keep unfolding or unpacking that idea. But Ephesians chapter 1 gives us a good idea of what some of those things are. And it's because the same God that rained down fire and brimstone, that spoke things into existence, that divided the Red Sea and worked the plagues, that brought manna down, that provided his son, who was mighty God, who healed all the paralyzed and blind people that he did, who prophesied of the future, who was virgin born and ultimately defeated death. That's the divine power that gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So a few natural kind of things that are born out of thinking about Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Number one, are you a part of the us? In that text, it's not every person has this. In fact, let's look at Second Peter chapter 1. And I want to make this point very clear. It's not that every person can't have this. But they don't. Right? Because what he says is Simon, Peter, a servant of the Apostle Jesus Christ, this is verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, which we spent a whole year last year talking about, then you are not a part of the us that has been granted anything pertaining to life and godliness. In fact, the exclusion of that statement or the uh, reverse of that statement is that outside of Christ, you've been granted nothing pertaining to life and godliness. If everything is granted through his divine power to those of us who have an equal faith, then nothing is outside of that realm. Okay? Now, that's not a fun thing to think about, and I don't say that 
judgmentally or negatively towards anyone, but you have to be honest with yourself and say, I can't have some of it. I can't think I'm partly in it. Like, I'm either with Christ, I've done the things that he's commanded to me to have a faith that is considered of God, and I have all of it or I have none of it. That's God's proposition, and it's his divine power that makes it that way. Did you notice God's divine power didn't like sort of divide the Red Sea? Like it did or it didn't, right? And it did abundantly, and he did it exactly how it was supposed to. And it stopped when it needed to stop. Did you notice Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in the fire and brimstone and not, you know, like the other cities that happened to be in the region? Very appropriate and specific and targeted. It was not more than it needed to be and it wasn't less than it needed to be. It was exactly what it should have been. Did you notice that with the manna, it spoiled after a while. Like if it was misused, it went bad. God has intentionally designed his divine power to grant in specific ways. And one of those ways is that it gives everything to those who have faith and nothing to those who don't. It's measured that way, just like his power has always been measured. It's always under control. It's always by design and by God's intent and will. So you need to ask yourself, am I a part of the us? If you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never been baptized for forgiveness of your sins, if you've never repented of your sins, these are all things that you might say, oh man, maybe I'm not part of the us. Right? I would ask you to consider that. Another question for, the, for those of us who are in God's body and his church or are a part of the us, do you really believe that you've got everything you need to succeed? And I don't mean like... In a worldly sense, obviously we're at church, right? So I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is, do you know that you really have everything that you need to have real life and to be really, truly godly? I meet, and I've suffered with this a little bit, but not as many as people I meet, not as often as people that I meet. Real uncertainty that people of faith have about, what's the word, their condition or their stance before the Lord. I'm meeting more and more people that are not certain that they actually have everything that they need for life and godliness. I'm not sure if there's one cause for that. I'm sure it's like a multifaceted, complex issue. But I would ask you to reflect honestly on 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And maybe that doubt arises from like uncertainties about actually being part of the us. And there's ways to sort through that. Maybe it arises from like guilt, from sin. And other things you know you need to change and you just haven't. And so that should be there. But maybe some of us just really don't know that that's a promise of God. That we don't really actually know that God says you have everything that you need to be alive and to be a godly person. 2 Peter 1.3 is your verse. Reflect on that. Think about it. Be honest about it. I would hate for any of us to stand before the Lord someday having been a part of this church, and tell God, you know, no one ever told me that I had everything I needed. I'd feel really bad about that. I'm not sure that's how it's going to unfold. I'm not sure if that conversation will occur. But I want to be able to stand before God and be like, look, I told people that in you was everything that they needed. And so think about that. Those are the two things that I want you to consider, whether you're a part of us and whether you really believed that everything you need is provided by God and granted to you 
I appreciate you guys paying attention and <laughs> bearing with me, like struggling through some of my sentences here. Um, I hope this has been helpful for you, and certainly I hope it's been true to the word. If there's anyone here this morning um, that sees a need in their life, that maybe you're not a Christian, this is your time to think about that. Not because you're at church or not because of anything else, but because you're only promised now. And so you need to be honest about that and make the changes you feel convicted to make from God's word. If you are a Christian and you need help, you also only are promised now. And so make those changes that you need to make while we're singing this song.